This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations. Real, honest, authentic conversations. The kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone I find interesting. From left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and speak to whoever I want. Staying independent has allowed me to speak freely and to tell the truth, no matter how unpopular, for many years now. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. We have seen over the last few years how deeply compromised big media is and how willing mainstream journalists are to twist facts and hide the truth to sell a narrative. I opted out of mainstream media on a traditional career path for a reason. I want to come to my own conclusions and not be compromised by financial, political, ideological, or corporate limitations. I refuse to trade my integrity or my free speech for a paycheck. But that means I need your help. I rely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work so that I can continue to do what I do. If you appreciate the kinds of conversations we're having at the same drugs, wish to support my work and access full interviews, a great way to do that is by becoming a subscriber on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy or on Substack at meganmurphy.ca where subscribers can be sure not to miss a single episode, can access subscriber-only video content, and engage with the comment section, subscriber-only chats and AMAs, and can keep up with my writing as well. You can, of course, follow the podcast on Spotify and support this podcast directly there by clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page. And finally, don't drink the Kool-Aid. You may have seen me in a very stylish shirt with that very timeless message, online and you can get your very own by going to meganmurphy.ca and clicking the shop tab. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Ted Balaker, director of the Coddling of the American Mind movie, which is set to become the first ever Substack Presents feature documentary, which will be released exclusively on Substack on February 22 at thecoddlingmovie.com. Ted, 
Thank you so much for joining me on the same drugs today. It's great to meet you. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thanks for having me, Megan. So you are a, are you a director and a producer of this upcoming documentary about the, the coddling of the American mind? Yes, I'm the director. Uh, my wife, Courtney moorhead Balker, is the primary producer, but I'm producer as well. Uh, we have a production company, and um, whenever it's a documentary, I direct and she produces. And when it's a narrative with actors, then we flip it and she directs and I produce. Equality. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you know, hiring, hiring You're doing it right. <laughs> Makes for a strange, uh, you know, home life, but I, mostly a, a very wonderful home life. Um, so tell me how you became involved in this project. Yeah. Uh, well, I've been friends with Greg Lukianoff, uh, who's the president and CEO of FIRE. Uh, the Foundation for Indi Individual Rights and Expression. They've recently changed their name, so I have to remember what it is. Um, and as a lot of uh, your listeners may know, they're kind of like the ACLU back when the ACLU, you know, really cared about free expression. Um, and their focus has been primarily on campuses over the years, although recently um, they've, they've broadened it to more cultural things. Um, but anyway, knowing Greg for many years, we've worked together on a number of projects, uh, short form and long form. We, uh, we, we collaborated on the 2016 documentary, Can We Take a Joke?, which features a bunch of comedians like uh, Gilbert Gottfried and others. Uh, it was actually the first um, mainstream film about cancel culture, um, but it, um, it didn't even use that term um, because that term wasn't even really coined yet. We called it outrage culture. Um, and we warned that all these crazy things, these kind of illiberal attitudes of shouting down speakers were going to spill over into the uh, culture at large. And a lot of the people in the film industry was like, no, no, don't worry about it. All this kookiness is it's going to stick to the crazy college campuses. You know, everything will be fine. And so, you know, of course, flash, flash forward to today, um, it, things aren't fine. Um, the, the film did very well, I think, in part because we ended up being right. Um, uh, my wife and I always joke that when the culture goes in the toilet, it's good for our business. Um, and, um, and so coddling, in a way, is kind of like a follow-up to that because it's like what's going on now, uh, especially with free speech, going back, to, um, going back to campus too, but not exclusively on campus. Um, and frankly, uh, being friends with Greg, he, um, and for those who've read the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, uh, of course, written by Greg and then uh, Jonathan Haidt of NYU, um, Greg is very, for the first time, very forthcoming about his struggle with uh, suicide. Um, and he had a very, very dark day. He, who came, you know, I'll just say he came very, very close to doing something, um, you know, that would have devastated uh, his friends and family, myself included. And I had no idea at the time. Um, and uh, so after we read the book, uh, Courtney and I talked to Greg about uh, turning it into a movie. And it's really, in a, in a lot of ways, it's, uh, it's a very challenging book to turn into a movie because it's, it's very heady. It's very packed with very important arguments and evidence. Um, and Greg and John are, are excellent writers, um, mm -hmm. but there's just so much, so much uh, information and so many ideas that we had, 
my wife and I were thinking, how do we find the story in all of this? And we said, Greg, if we're going to turn this into a movie, you've got to be forthcoming about your struggles on camera for the first time. Are you willing to do that? And so that was, you know, he had to really think about it. But since we've had this relationship um, at that point for, you know, over 10 years, uh, collaborating um, and otherwise, uh, he agreed to do it. And um, he was very forthcoming. So it's the first time he's on camera talking about these issues. Um, and uh, he, I'm happy to say that he's thrilled with how the film has come out. John is thrilled. Uh, they're both uh, very much behind it, uh, as are their organizations. Um, John is uh, the chairman of Heterodox Academy, um, which is working on getting um, viewpoint diversity, constructive disagreement, and other uh, classical liberal ideas back on college campus where they belong. Um, so we're uh, we're going to be working with both those organizations throughout. Yeah, and so I've just watched the film, of course, and it seems like there are, you know, two primary narratives, I suppose, that are are covered. One of those is this mental health crisis, um, and as you say, um, Greg is is very open about his mental health struggles and and how he recovered i suppose you could say and then of course there's what's happening on college campuses um what's been called the free speech crisis what's happening with dei diversity equity inclusion um and those things are are intertwined um i one of the things that i found really instructive about the documentary was the discussions of, you know, the differences between generations. Um, and I tend to be overly critical of the younger generations in general. <laughs> so I try to like check charge, myself. Well. <laughs> I've turned into an old person, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and I'm like, those young people don't know what they're doing. They're all useless, blah, blah, blah. I don't think that's true at all. I, of course, I have friends who are 25 years old. I have friends who are 30 years old. Um, but it's it seems clear that social media has had an enormous impact as well as some other factors. Um, I think, you know, in the, the film talks about kids now showing up at college with almost no life experience as compared to the older generations. Um, what's happening there? Yeah, um, it is kind of a mental health uh, mystery. Um, and um, John and Greg in the book tie together a, a lot of different threads. Um, um, to point to a couple, um, there is the um, obsession with safety. Um, Greg and John call it safetyism. It's almost like, you know, how we would, it's almost like a, a highest goal to, to a lot of people. Like you, you can hear it in, 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 even in the, in, in the jargon these days, like, I don't feel safe, this safe, that safe, even when people really aren't physically threatened. So this idea started permeating in colleges that um, uh, is mostly divorced from physical safety. So if I don't feel safe, then you know, is that the same as I'm going to be physically attacked? No, but unfortunately, a lot of young people are being taught that it is. 
Um, so they're being taught, and this is one of the, there are three great untruths that Greg and John talk about, and we mentioned in the movie. Uh, number one, you're fragile. Number two, always trust your feelings. And number three, us versus them, or the idea that life is a battle between us and them, and, you know, the kind of the good guys and the bad guys. And so um, we've had a situation where um, even though, if you go back to safetyism, for instance, um, objectively, our day-to-day -day lives have gotten a lot safer for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, but we had things like the Adam Walsh kidnapping um, dec decades ago now. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm a parent. Uh, being, having a child kidnapped is, you know, at the, the top of my list of greatest fears ever. So I totally understand that. But by the same token, um, if you're paralyzed by fear, then you're going to let you're going to coddle your kids. And that's really what we mean by coddling. It's not, you guys are, you know, snowflakes, blah, blah, blah. By the way, I totally <laughs> agree with you. I, I share the same uh, kind of twists and turns in, in, in my, you know, mental makeup re with regard to Gen Z's. I, I thought they were, oh, you know, just toughen up, blah, blah, blah. Um, but the more I talk with them, uh, the more I realize that it's really, frankly, the older people's fault to a large degree. Um, Mike Rowe put it well. He's the guy from Dirty Jobs. He said, if there are snowflakes, then we're the clouds. So um, <laughs> the idea being that these 18-year-olds didn't just like fall from space and land it, you know, at, uh, you know, on the campus of Harvard and elsewhere. Um, they were created and they were created by administrators at college, but not just administrators, by, you know, parents and teachers uh, oftentimes with good intentions so that, you know, we're worried about them being safe. And so we coddle them, but in the process of coddling them, they feel fragile and they're afraid of life. They're afraid to do things that, that I and so many of us just took for granted, like getting a driver's license. I was thrilled to get my driver's license, you know, thrilled to <laughs> drink, thrilled to do a lot of things that maybe I shouldn't have been doing, but, um, uh, so, you know, of course, there, there can be downsides to drinking too young and, and everything, but there are also upsides to just kind of testing your limits. And if you don't do that, you become uh, paralyzed by life. I heard uh, one woman put it as a human veal. I've always liked that phrase, human <laughs> veal. Um, yeah. You know, that's just that's kind of how we're raising our kids. And then they end up on college and they, they don't know how to um, they've always had mom or dad or somebody uh, adjudicate their disputes for them. So my wife and I uh, left LA, I guess, geez, it feels like just yesterday, but it's like six years ago now. And part of the reason was that we saw that um, uh, that hovering among uh, other parents so that mm -hmm. if our kid who like at, at the time was like two or three uh, was at the playground and there was some dispute, you know, there'd be a mom or a nanny, sometimes a dad who would kind of rush in and be like, you know, say, say sorry, um, uh, so and so, you know, make sure that you didn't don't do that again. And they just wouldn't let the kids kind of work it out. And if you never have that um, a, that chance to work it out, then you get to college and you don't know how to work it out. And then you're told that everything is a threat. And so guess what? You perceive a lot of things as a threat, even if they aren't really a threat. And so colleges are really teaching kids to be miserable. Um, and it, it's almost like they're signing up for the world's worst therapist or something. Yeah, the one of one of the people that you interview or, or oh, who was it? I can't remember who said it. But anyway, it, it, this this quote, this Buddhist 
uh, stoic quote is referenced in the film um, that says, it's not things that disturb us, but our interpretation of their significance. Um, and as much as I might, you know, judge or mock or blame these younger people, these young college students for their, their, you know, viewing a so-called microaggression as violence or viewing a tweet as, as violence. You know, you talk to this one young woman who talks about how she would spend her nights seeking out violent, violent tweets from Ben Shapiro to report. And she also talks about like how much anxiety that kind of behavior and that kind of approach to life caused her. But yeah, I mean, if you if you don't learn that, like if you don't learn that the way that you approach situations or interpret or view situations can drastically change your reaction to those situations, then you you would go about life seeing seeing these these behaviors and these events as as very threatening as these these students clearly do or did. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm happy to say that uh, the students that we profile, they're a global group of 20 somethings and uh, they've all been through the ringer in, in kind of the coddling story and the mental health crisis in one way or another. But, and this was crucial for, for us, for our team, we didn't want it, the movie to be a downer. We wanted to show that there's hope, that you can turn it around if bad ideas can lead you to feel depressed and anxious, then good ideas can help you you know, find peace and happiness and fulfillment. And so, yeah, what you saw uh, with Kimmy, that was uh, the young woman uh, who's originally from Uganda, interestingly came to America for college, loved America initially. Uh, and then, uh, you know, not too long after her college yeah. experience. This place is so friendly. Right. Everyone is so nice yeah, exactly. and welcoming. <laughs> right. At the gas station, people are saying hi to her and they'd seem to really mean it. This is, and she was very well-traveled before. Uh, and so she she just was amazed like this is so cool. People actually seem to really care if I'm having a good day. How bizarre! Uh, and yeah, unfortunately, that changed in a hurry, and it changed to a large degree because, like you said, um, of this peculiar concept called microaggressions that that she had been taught at her school. Um, again, she was she she was supposed she thought she was learning something that had nothing to do with anything like that. She's, she's in the music industry. Um, but uh, as watchers of the modern university know, there's no way to hide from, from the new ideology. And the, the, uh, Kimmy said a lot of really, really important and, and deeply insightful things. And one that really hit me and the rest of our team was just the idea of microaggressions, flipping it on its head. So what college administrators and others tell kids is that if you go out in the world and if you happen to be a black, brown, disabled, um, or a, you know a, another a member of some other minority group, uh, you know somebody could um, look at you the wrong way. So if someone's approaching you on the sidewalk and they don't you know move away uh, quickly enough, that could be a microaggression. They're they're communicating something negative to you, and so the idea is that people out there are hurting you. Um, but Kimmy flipped it around. She's like, no, they're not. And she used the, the, the metaphor of a knife. It's not like they're stabbing me. It's like, I'm stabbing myself. 
because I'm choosing to interpret these interactions, which are probably just, you know, regular day-to-day interactions. If, you know, you live in a big city, Kimmy lived in LA at the time, um, you know, you you walk, you have, if you, you just kind of tried to mind read everybody you encounter with in Los Angeles, I mean, you'd probably think whoever you are, you'd probably think everybody hates you. You're on, you're on the road, you're trying to cross the street. If everything, if you make everything personal and if you interpret it in the least charitable way possible, it's hurting you. So, um, you know, forget it. This movie is not primarily about um, the, the the white students who are feeling uh, out of place or the conservative or other students who don't like the current climate. Those people are very important too. But this movie focuses on the groups of people, black, brown, disabled, and, and otherwise, who are, you know, have a special place uh, in the mind of administrators. They're doing all these DEI programs for these groups. And if these programs, at least to the extent that they incorporate the three great untruths, if they're incorporating really harmful ideas and frankly, unproven ideas um, like microaggressions, um, they are not helping those that they're aiming to help. In fact, uh, there's a lot of evidence that they're hurting them. Kimmy said, herself. It's like, it's like living in a horror movie. You wake up and everything, everybody's out to get you. I mean, why, why would you force that worldview on, on a young person? It's, it's a, a lot of times it's done, you know, not necessarily with bad intentions, but after a while, I think, uh, you know, I think sometimes I think Greg and John are more generous to, to them than, than I would be the administrators and so forth. Um, I think now it's just such a kind of a turf battle where if you say, um, you know, the whole DEI thing has become so supercharged and it happened, you know, we watched um, the temperature being turned up and up and up as our film was being completed. Uh, and so it's now like a, it's even more, I think, timely than, than we started. Um, mm. But uh, it's going to be interesting to see how, you know, what's going to happen when we step out into the world with this film that, um, that I, that you know is very high high charged in in a in a in a way that I think people haven't seen before. They're used to certain types of discussions about this, but not the idea that these programs are hurting black, brown, and disabled kids. Yeah, and I mean, and and that young woman from Uganda, Kimmy, is that her name, Kimmy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I missed that from the film. Um, I mean, she thought. So she watched the 2016 election happen and saw Donald Trump win and called that a really traumatic experience for her because she thought that meant that she was going to die. She literally thought that Donald Trump winning that 2016 election over Hillary Clinton meant that she was going to to die. And she didn't seem like she was being a hyperbolic. It seemed like she really believed that at the time. Yeah. No, I'm glad you picked up on that, Megan, because that's uh, initially that's that was my reaction too. with with when I read stories like Kimmy's. Um, it's difficult to say, like, you really think um, that an election going the wrong way is going to be this catastrophic, even if you really, really don't like the winning candidate. But as you saw with Kimmy, and as I heard over and over and over, these kids mean it. These uh, you know, young people, they mean it. They're not, um, I've heard um, 
some critics say that they're just like feigning it's like fake outrage and, and I'm, I'm sure there, there's some of that too but i think what a lot of critics really misunderstand and misdiagnose is that a lot of this is deeply deeply sincere and that's why you get the hysteria so um you know we we sort of see our movie as being uh in between two different camps like one camp wants to just kind of make fun of the snowflakes and the other camp wants to enable <laughs> uh, enable them. Um, we want to try to help them um, because uh, what's going on on college campus isn't, and frankly beyond now, isn't good for, for, for anybody, uh, regardless of what your, what your background is. And when you think about that impact and those kinds of beliefs um, and the intensity of those kinds of beliefs and, you know, and the way that you would react if you literally believed that so-and-so winning the election meant you were going to die or that a whole group of people was going to be, you know, genocided or something like that. You know, the, the way that people react, which seems insane to those of us watching, does make sense. And then you kind of think about how they got to that place and I put a lot of blame on the media um and on social media um and yeah I mean I I it's like where did she get this idea where would a young person get the idea that if Donald Trump won the election they were going to die yeah well it's it's uh, like you said Megan uh, you pointed to media and and social media, that's that's exactly what Kimmy points to. And then you add on top of that another layer of the college situation where you um where you're kind of having these bad ideas reinforced almost at every turn. So you go to class, there there they are. You go to the media, there, there they are. You go to social media, there they are. So all these ideas, even like safetyism and so forth, they were all um kind of you know percolating in the culture. Um, but then when it came to social media, social media just kind of was the, the like the gasoline on the fire. So mm. you have all these bad ideas and then social media comes along and supercharges everything. So outrage can be spread, you know, literally around the world in a matter of seconds. Um, if it's, you know, if, if it conforms to uh, what the algorithm wants, you know, so specifically, um, and it really happened. It's and it's not. I should say it's not all social media. And it, it, we kind of forget like the good old days, if you know, if you call them that. Of you know, when when social media first started, it was really just a way to kind of post about your favorite bands, and that's that's literally what Kimmy uh, was explaining. She went on Twitter because she wanted to connect, you know, with follow her favorite bands and things like that. Uh, Lucy, who's an uh, autistic woman, um, who's now a Stanford undergrad. Um, she wanted to con connect with other autistic people. Um, and, and so there's definitely a good side to social media, but around about 2009, that's when all the companies introduced the like button. And that's when outrage mm -hmm. could become supercharged. So it's no, at that point, it's not just about connecting with other autistic people or just about, you know, keeping up with your favorite bands. It's like, it, you know, we can, if you say something wrong, uh, you can be pummeled into submission. You know, you could be a heretic overnight. Uh, the world could hate you. Um, and it has a lot of, um, there are a lot of ripple effects to that. So that um, 
one thing that I, that really struck me um, is to the degree to which young people are now self-censoring and it's, it's almost like pre-canceling themselves so that um, they, if they're going to make even as something as simple as like, I want to make this joke on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it now, um, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to say that joke. Or they go back and scrub their social media accounts preemptively because, oh my goodness, you know, I'm going to graduate soon and I don't want a prospective employer to see what I said about X, Y, and Z issue. Or I need to get into grad school now and I better mind my P's and Q's. Um, so I'm going to just kind of scrub that that part of me away. And it's really, uh, it's it's very eerie because you're, you're, you're kind of erasing your own history and then you're on top of that, you're self-censoring um, as you as you move forward in time. And and that that idea that, you know, for all the talk these days of being authentic and being, you know, your true self, um, that really runs afoul of what's actually going on a lot of times because young people, um, and frankly, you know, I'm a Gen Xer, uh, it, it, I think it happens um, to, to lots of generations these days. You you are very um, wary of, of, of really you know, being yourself, being your authentic self. Um, you yeah. can be your authentic self if it kind of fits with the within the strictures of the monoculture. Um, then, like by all means, be your authentic self. But all of us have ideas that, frankly, are a little uh, heretical. And if we let all of those out, somebody is going to be upset. And especially when you're young, that's a very difficult mental space to inhabit because every day you're, you're waking up. And there's this uh, Saeed, uh, another one of our interview subjects, put it really well. He's like, there's me, and then there's the me I portray to everybody else. And um, there's always the conflict between the real him and the him that's online, for instance. And that's just a really miserable way to live uh, day in and day out. Yeah. And I mean, I just as you were talking, it made me think about how younger people approach yeah, their their histories, essentially, their online histories and things like publishing. So I've, you know, ran a website for over 10 years. So I've edited and published the work of other women, primarily um, younger and older women. And the amount of young women who will send me an email, you know, three, five, seven years after they've published an article on my website and asked me to take it down or to ah. change their name or to take their name off the piece. It's so many women. The older women don't ever do that to me, but the young women do. And I've been writing, you know, for, I don't know, since not that long, like since I was about 30. So, you know, mostly online, not in print, but I still approach publishing um, from like a print perspective. So I would never dream of asking a publisher to take down something that I'd written for them and that they'd published for me. Because first of all, I'm going to be accountable for what I've said. And I've changed my mind about all sorts of things. I just say, I've changed yeah. my mind about this. <laughs> and now yeah. I see this differently. Um, or, you know, that's not something that I would write now. Um, but this they they totally feel entitled to and sometimes they're very hyperbolic about their reasons why they want the article removed or they want their names changed you know it's somehow dangerous to them but usually it's like a career change usually it's i'm applying for universities i'm applying for this program 
or I'm starting to apply for jobs and I don't want this to come up in a Google search. Yeah. And then they also want to demand that I go around and scrub social media. And I used to always just have this policy of being like, I'm not unpublishing anything unless there's a legal issue. Um, and of course, I'm not going to go around and scrub things off of social media. But, you know, at a certain point, I was just like, okay, you know, like, I don't, I don't ruin your chances of getting into a program or like getting into this new job. And it had just, it seemed like it had become so normalized for that to happen, that online publications yeah. would take something down either if they didn't like it, you know, they got bad feedback. So they pull something. And I was shocked when I saw that first starting to happen because again, like in print media, you can't do that. You just publish an yeah. editor's note the next week or whatever. But it just became so normalized that I'm like, am I, am I the only publisher on the internet that's going to refuse to take your oh, wow. article down because you don't want to get in trouble? But the just the entitlement and the demands and and the anger when I would say, oh, you know, the way that they would respond when I would say no, like I was ruining their lives or endangering them in some ways. It's like, wow. man, like you published this. That's it. You'd like, yeah. you, you know. You should be able to defend yourself, or at least you should be able to explain that you changed their minds. And I don't, I don't think that those women did really change their minds about what they wrote. Even I think they just thought it might get them in trouble. That is so interesting and so terrifying. And and um, I would guess and that the the requests weren't just kind of random. That they were certain issues and certain perspectives. Or yeah, uh, is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I've I'm like quite well known in my advocacy for women's sex based rights and against gender identity ideology. Um, and so my website is associated with those ideas. But often, you know, the things that these women would have been writing about would have been connected to those ideas as well. Not always. Sometimes I think it was just the association with the website or with other authors who'd said things along those lines. Um, but yeah. And some of them were quite rude. Really? <laughs> like some, some of them try to kind of like threaten you and like, you know, this uh. is, I own this and it's like my legal. And it's like, no, you don't actually. <laughs> That's wow. the deal is that I published it and then now I own it. But, uh, <laughs> wow. I don't, I, you know, I don't want to get in arguments with people around this thing. I usually try to keep it simple. But that is um, so fascinating, man. There, that's, yeah, that, I mean, that's, I see one of my big bugaboos is, is you know, when people talk about cancel culture and, and, and frankly, that plays, you know, a pretty big role in, in the coddling movie as well. Um, a lot of times people see it as, as, you know, who's the celebrity in the crosshairs or, or who's the poor schmo who everybody hates today. Um, and that's part of it. But the, the stuff that you talked about and the stuff that I encountered in, in my many interviews with, with Gen Zers, uh, it just seems very, very obvious that that's like what we see is the tip of the iceberg and and the real activity is is happening below the waterline. It's happening when, you know, nobody will, nobody but you, and you know your associates, uh, and and now <laughs> your listeners will will know about uh, anecdotes like that. But they they're multiplied, you know, across the culture. And I've I've talked with other people who, um, 
who have similar encounters like that. So what I, you know, whatever, what, whether it's uh, J.K. Rowling, you know, who, uh, Dave Chappelle, like who's ever the celebrity of the moment, that just that is just such a, a tip of the iceberg thing. It's it's you know, cancel culture isn't about Dave Chappelle. It's about the yeah. the seventeen year old version of Dave Chappelle who's now, you know, going to clubs and trying to get stage time. And you know what what jokes are he is, is he going to avoid? Um, how you know how is he going to change his act? I you know have a um, a, a Gen Z uh, uh, comedian friend, uh, a one a one name um, friend. Uh, she's she's Indian, and uh, her her parents thought that she would uh, just get married and take her husband's name, so they they never bothered to give her a last name. Um, but her <laughs> name is Sir. Yes, so it's now a big part of her comedy routine. But uh, she's very talented, very brave, very brash, and she's uh, you know and she's doing a good job in New York and she tours. Um, but she'll tell me that um, comedians her age, they, you know, you don't talk about X, Y, and Z. You know, you probably right. know what, what those are. It's, you know, certainly it's the gender issues. It's, uh, it's uh, and it's a lot of the other hot button issues. Um, and that's, you know, that's part of the, the Dave Chappelle ripple effect too. It's not, you know, is he going to be canceled from this or that special? Um yeah, wow. I get sorry. I get riled up when I hear things like that uh, that you mentioned because that's it's just so much darker. And I, I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic, and I want to be optimistic. <laughs> but when I hear things like that, it's like oh no, it really is that bad. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point that it's not really about the celebrities and the famous people getting canceled. Although I think that's terrible, but it's about how regular people are operating in their regular lives. And I, I just remembered, I just wanted to mention another anecdote, which will probably upset you further, um, which there was right. this woman. There was this, it's, well, it's just, it's such a different mentality from the mentality that I, I have and it, how, you know, it's just not how I approach my work or my life at all. And the idea of having to operate in my life by hiding parts of my life and hiding parts of myself seems really awful to me. And that would give me a lot of anxiety and that would make me feel depressed. So I suppose it's unsurprising that these generations are experiencing anxiety and depression at higher rates. There's other factors as well. But there was this woman who was, I think she she would have been a millennial, not Gen Z, younger than me in any case. And she we were co-hosting this uh, live stream for a little while. And at some point, and it seemed all very sudden to me, I was really confused. She got really, really upset with me. And she's like, in this stream, you said, but -da 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 -da. again, it was connected to the gender identity issue. So you, you made this comment. And then in this stream, you made this comment. And they were kind of these like one offs. And there were things that I believed in that I'd written about and I talked about ad nauseum. They weren't, you know, secret beliefs or, or and I, to me, they didn't seem egregious at all. There are things that I would say in regular conversation or publicly. Um, and she was like, you know, you need to take down those episodes. And I was like, <laughs> and then it, I was like, okay, wait, what? And so I went and I went back and I listened and I watched and watched and I was like, I don't understand. I don't even understand what it is that you're concerned about here with what I said. And she was like, I, you have to take them down, you know, like I can't be associated with this kind of commentary. I went through and I I created transcripts of both of the videos to pinpoint the parts and I sent them to her and I was like, can you just explain to me 
I tried to talk to her on the phone about it. She refused. I was like, can you explain what parts of these you're upset by? And eventually I determined, and then she, she kind of just like wanted her to be removed from all the episodes entirely. She's like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm applying for a new programs at university and I'm trying to change my career paths. And I just, you have to take down all of these videos. And this was like, you know, 20 or 30, this was like a podcast that we were doing like a weekly thing. Um, and I was like, I'm not going to do that. And she's like, well, I'm going to report your channel and have everything taken down then. And at that point I had been banned from Twitter for calling a man a woman. So I was like really nervous about getting banned from more social media. You know, this is my job and whatever. Yeah. And I just, and I was totally confused. And then I just realized uh, that it was just, she was switching careers and the association with me, you know, I don't even think it was anything, yeah. you know, it's not like she didn't know who I was or what my beliefs are before <laughs> we started doing this. This is like 2020. I've been talking about this stuff for a decade now. Right. Um, she just, and she didn't want to be associated, but she didn't even really come out and say that. But I was just like, is this like, you just want to erase your entire internet history and person. And these are your beliefs too. She wasn't, she doesn't disagree with anything that I said. Oh, she agrees man. with what I was saying. <laughs> like, it's just, oh. it's so crazy. And, and you know, oh. so you, you got to kind of feel bad for them. I, I, I don't really feel bad for her because I thought it was really a, a shitty thing to do. But yeah. I was like, the, the way that you think about the world and life and your entitlement to create this persona of yourself that isn't even real, like you get to be whoever you want to be on the internet basically yeah or maybe or to your friends like what it's just it's so strange to me to operate in that way i can't even i can't even imagine oh man yeah you're just twisting the knife on me megan this is awful (laughs) (laughs) i have optimism yeah you know you're gonna leave this interview like oh man (laughs) Yeah, it's like, oh, geez. Yeah, but, you know, I'm, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working on this other project where we're talking with, um, you know, I work in the, in the entertainment industry, in the film industry mostly. And it's always been pretty narrow minded, but since 2020, it's just been like suffocating. Um, and um, just, uh, and, and so I'm, my wife and I are embarking on this side project where we're talking to people in the industry from frankly, lots of different political points of view um, and asking them what they think about the the state of free expression. And from the furthest left progressive to that, you know, there are, there's a smattering of conservatives in Hollywood and we've talked to some of them uh, and and the moderates. um, They, it's amazing how the broad strokes are all the same. Like even the, the 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 lefties are noticing this this chilling effect, um, and they're just paring back their lives. They're paring back who they are. They're not being their authentic selves. They're um, it's it's in casting. You know, you can't have um, you know we talk to a top casting director, a friend of ours. You can't have black people be certain roles. They can't be the maids. They can't be drug addicts. They can't be in a lot of cases the bad guys. Um, and we were joking like this among actors, these are some of the most coveted roles. Like everybody wants to be a bad guy. Like that's, that's kind of the coolest role in a way. And if, and if you're kind of pairing it back to where it's, it's like, um, you know, commercials where, you know, 
you have a, a home security commercial and you got to, you know, get the, get the white guy to play the burglar all the time, you know, you're just not, and if, if that kind of mentality spills over into film, as you know, they're telling me it has, they, what's bizarre, I mean, it's bizarre on so many levels, but one is that they, they really think they're helping uh, black and brown people, but they're, they're literally taking roles away from them, like very interesting roles, and they're doing it in the name of progress. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, we, we've started to hear way more about this DEI stuff in like probably the past year, I think. Um, and I think that it's, it's all very ridiculous, but beyond the ridiculous, do you think that it's harmful? I mean, you would assume that it's harmful to like white students um, and oh, yeah. Asian students, you know what I mean? I think that's a big conversation where people are talking about like, this is racism, like you're discriminating against people based on race. Um, but do you think that that also has harmful impacts on the students that these policies are supposedly protecting, you know, the black students, the brown students, the what you maybe we'd call them like gender diverse students, um, yeah. so on and so forth? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If you um, if you go through life thinking that the world is out to get you, that's um, that's just a prescription. That's just a recipe for, for being miserable. Um, right. There was, uh, I mentioned earlier, Lucy, uh, the uh, Stanford undergrad, uh, she, she's autistic. And, and even now I kind of pause when I'm like, okay, how do I describe that? Because just the phrasing of, of, um, of, you know, her condition and like, do you call it a condition? Do you call it, is it a disability? When she uh, talked about being upset at the time by being called an autistic person. Right. You can't say that. You can't say autistic person. Do you remember the mental gymnastics she had to do? Um, so she basically, if if she heard someone say uh, autistic person, or sorry. Uh, or sorry, was it person with autism? Person I got with it wrong. Autism. Sorry yeah, about person that. with yeah. autism. Yeah. If you say person with autism, that means you want to murder Lucy and everybody who has autism. Now, right, because you don't want you want autism not to exist. Right, if because you, if you if you say person with autism. with autism, that means the autism can be separated from the person. If that means it can be separated, that means you want it to be separated, and that means that you uh, want uh, autistic people not to exist, and therefore mm -hmm. you want genocide against autistic people. And this is another one. Lucy is in all these. Uh, Gen Zers we spoke with, they are the most beautiful people. They, you would, you know, these are the people you would, I'm not a talker on planes. I, I, you know, uh, I, I don't like the chatty person, you know, to, to talk to me on the plane. I just, uh, you know, want to read or whatever, but these are the type of people who, if you're on a cross country flight, you would welcome talking to them. They're just so, such lovely, open-minded people. And the fact that someone like Lucy or someone like Kimmy could, could fall into this darkness like this. It shows that, and they and they are these are highly intelligent people too. These are not people who were just duped. Um, I mean, any any one of us could be. You know, I I've, that's kind of how I've mustered up more compassion because I thought like, uh, what would I have been like, you know, in growing up in this age if if I were were 
hammered with all these things. If I had autism and I was told by, um, you know, administrators, uh, and again, it doesn't start in college, but you know, it's, it's on social media, just this drumbeat that, um, the world hates you because you're autistic. Um, you're fragile because you're autistic. Words can permanently harm you. Um, so words um, aren't just something you hear and decide to believe or not. They're something that can literally harm you. I mean, they literally believe this stuff, Megan. Um, I, I'm saying this out loud, you know, because there, like I said earlier, there, there was a time when I just didn't believe it. I thought, you know, they were kind of putting on a show or something, but Lucy, uh, the you know, very highly intelligent, very warm, funny, wonderful Lucy. She literally thought that if you phrased, if you use the term person with autism, that you wanted to murder her. Mm-hmm. I just can't imagine going through life like that. Um, yeah. And, you know, she reflects on it now and she's, thank goodness, she's been able to diffuse all that bad thinking. Uh, you know, the book, The Coddling of the American Mind had, had a lot to do with her transformation she also, and, and I'm seeing like certain patterns. A lot of these uh, young people have friends who kind of stick with them through the bad times. And they're not just pounding them with like, you're, you know, you're wrong, you're evil, you know, get it together, snowflake. They're, they're really listening to them. And there's really no, a lot of times there's no shortcut. Uh, it's like, you have to truly care about these people and, and show that you care. Um, and then at, at a specific time, um, sometimes that you, you think that they're not paying attention to you so i would just advise anybody who who has loved ones or friends who are who are in this these dark places because of these really harmful ideas stick with them um, because someone like lucy had a wonderful friend in her life who was there and you know this is part of the story too the friend didn't want to talk about it the friend didn't you know she she played who knows where lucy would be uh, if it weren't for this friend who basically helped her by showing her a bigger world that existed outside the university. Mm. Lucy had never heard of Glenn Lowry, for instance, who had never, like, she thought that all Black people all believed, you know, the Black Lives Matter um, line. Um, you know, certainly some do, but, you know, I've I've jumped quite a lot into public opinion polling in in, uh, in recent months, and Surprise, surprise, there's a huge diversity of opinion among black people, brown people, all people, really. Yeah. Um, and so she was so comforted to hear that um, these new ideas and that the world wasn't necessarily as dark and bleak as she thought it was, so that she was stronger, frankly, than she thought she was, that she wasn't fragile. That's yeah. very empowering when you when you tell someone that, you know, these if it's a microaggression, like that's you interpret your being taught to interpret it as something that it's not um, it, or, you know, sometimes, and, and maybe if it is, then that person is a jerk and yes, you, you shouldn't, you know, maybe associate with that person, but just this idea that you're teaching kids um, that the world is out to, to get you, um, you know, Kimmy put it well. And uh, you know, when we were talking uh, elsewhere that she, this, she's like, this is something that the KKK would come up with. Um, and um, now, you know, again, I, I say it again, I try to extend more generosity to the people I disagree with. I don't think that's, you know, they're not coming from a bad place like that. Um, 
but I do think it's about time. There's enough, there's enough evidence now um, about the harmful effects of all these things um, that people now, I think if you, if you're not really paying attention, um, you know, it's, it's getting harder and harder to assign good intentions. Um, if, if you're really willingly um, looking the other way when you hear evidence uh, that confronts your deeply held beliefs on this issue. Yeah. And I think that that's one of, one of the best things that you can do for yourself. If you're feeling like you're trapped in this, this bubble, this ideological political bubble, um, or one of the best things that maybe you can do for someone that, you know, a friend or family member or whatever, who's trapped in one of these bubbles is, to try to help them access the bigger world because the bigger world, you know, outside these bubbles is great and is very diverse in a wide variety of ways. Um, you know, diverse in terms of things like skin color, but also in terms of like class and religion and political views and ideological views. And I think what you probably would realize if you branched out a bit would be that most of the world does not operate in a way that ties politics to your identity. Um, and one of the young men that you talked to or that you featured in the documentary speaks about that. I think he was yeah. from Nigeria. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is that right? And he yeah. was like this idea that everybody is either left or right and that politics are your identities. Like that was just a completely foreign idea to him. And yet people in America and people in Canada as well really operate in that way and really do see the world in that way. Not, not everybody, you know, like yeah. if, you know, but it, it appears that people are very much attached to who they vote for and where they fall on the political spectrum. And it means a lot to them to the point where they'll, um, reject family members and friends who see things differently. Um, this, this young man wrote me on Patreon um, because uh, in relation to a, a live stream that I was doing and I was just asking for comments or questions that, that people might want us to discuss. And he, his name was George and he goes to university in Victoria, which is like a very woke city in Canada on Vancouver Island um, and he was feeling really depressed and sad because he'd been dating this girl who broke up with him, he thinks, because he's a turf. So because he's, you know, critical of gender identity ideology and he doesn't think that males should be able to identify as women and be placed in women's prisons and things like that. And he feels like he's the only one at the entire school who challenges this and he challenges it openly so he's sort of known as this like bigot on campus and he was like how am I gonna date like how am I gonna find a girl to date in this context and like when do I bring it up on the date that I feel this way because I don't want this to happen again and we were like oh my gosh George like wow some some young turf, please find George and George. <laughs> you've got a, yeah, it sounds like you've got the makings for a, you know an online dating service or something. Totally. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's an I, entrepreneurial so, opportunity for you. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really geez, yeah. 
but you know that's funny that you say that there's so much um again i go back to the the double self um and um there was another young man arian uh, who we profile who, who was um was targeted because he spoke out uh, against the dei program that he was forced to attend as a condition of him being uh, an employee at the school um right. and so he he posted his thoughts online and elsewhere and received, you know, basically the, the warmth and kindness you would expect to receive. Um, he was, um, you know, racist, xenophobic, uh, and every phobic, you know, forget that, never mind that he's, you know, a brown immigrant from India, uh, but he's, he's xenophobic. So, you know, you could somehow he's still xenophobic, I guess. Um, but he, there's this, uh, and I wonder, if it applies to your friend George too, this idea of um, public criticism and private praise. So that when he, um, when Ariane was really in the thick of it, um, getting hated on by by the internet and his uh, his colleagues on campus, um, he all the hate was there for all the world to see. Ariane, you're this. Ariane, you're that. Um, you hate these people. You hate that people. Um, the social isolation, um, it, you know, it was much worse than we could even cover in the movie. Um, but then there was this other side of it where he would get private praise. So, you know, DMs, you know, I'm with you, man. Like, I'm, I'm so glad that you spoke up. These programs are, are junk. Um, even from professors, you know, um, sending emails directly to him, but then not sticking up for him um, in public. Um, so my guess is that uh, George has a lot more people who agree with him on campus than than he realizes. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. Um, I appreciate that. I hope that George will watch this and also appreciate that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I've often thought about this mental health crisis that is said to be happening and wondered if it's really happening or if it's just that younger people are getting diagnosed more often or self-diagnosing more often, yeah. what do you think? Yeah, um, a lot of times people say, well, maybe they're just being more open about it um, because previous generations just didn't wanna talk about mental health. Um, unfortunately, the data don't seem to bear that out because you're you're also seeing, in addition to um, a spike in everything else. You're seeing a spike in, um, for uh, like um, attempted suicides, uh, uh, emergency room admissions for um, attempted suicide. So th they're uh, in actual suicide attempts. Um, so those things and and you know suicides themselves are are increasing as well. And so um, it makes it hard to say they're just being more open about it. Or they're being overdiagnosed, and if they were being overdiagnosed, you would you would tend to see it maybe um, on a lot of other kinds of um, mental health uh, issues. But you don't you don't see like a spike in schizophrenia or something. You you see a spike in two things: anxiety and depression. Um, and um, John Haidt, um, who's also featured in the movie, of course, co-author of the book. Um, on his Substack, he, he recently had um, an article that goes down the list of all the 
whatabouts that that people bring up, um, and um, and the article, you know, does a really good job of, of teasing everything out and and uh, showing that unfortunately we really are in a really bad predicament. I'm kind of like I grew up in my just my normal inclination is anti-alarmism because I that's I'm I'm used to you know, like trying to um, I hate it when people go nuts about threats that aren't real. Um, and I think that happens a lot or just overstate threats. So I'm always, I'm usually on the other side, like this isn't a big deal, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but there's also a problem that if, if uh, you know, you don't want to be an alarmist, but you don't want to be, and I don't even know what the, the opposite word would be, um, you know, um, maybe tolerating too tolerant of problems, but you, you just want to do your best to see the world as it really is. You want it to be like pro-reality. <laughs> I'm trying to be pro-reality. Um, I don't want to be an alarmist on on um, on the Gen Z mental health crisis. But and you know, I'm certainly no. I'm a filmmaker uh, and a writer. I'm I'm not a, a psychologist, um, but I'm very persuaded by John and Greg and the others. Um, that we really do have something that's frankly worthy of sounding the alarm for. If, if you don't sound the alarm and your house is really on fire, then that's that's a problem too. You don't want to be chicken little, but you also don't want to be twiddling your thumbs when there is a real problem. Yeah. So do you feel optimistic? Do you think things are changing? <laughs> I feel like things, no. I feel like things are changing. I mean, I think I probably go back and forth a little bit. But I think because I don't live in Vancouver anymore, and so I spend a lot of time around a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds and from different countries, people who haven't don't have a university education, um, and people. So I live in Mexico now, um, and you know. But people don't, and you know, I have lots of friends here who are Canadian and American too, of mm -hmm. course. And people just aren't obsessed with politics here where I live in yeah. really at all. <laughs> Never mind in the same way that people are in places like Vancouver and Victoria and San Francisco yeah. and lots of other American cities. Um, and, you know, it's, and people seem better off for that too. Um, and I like it better, you know, like I like being able to have different kinds of conversations with different kinds of people and learn things about people's views and why they feel that way, but also just sort of be free from having to talk about politics all the right. time, you know, like I don't necessarily really want to go out and go to the bar and talk about politics with people. It doesn't sound like all that much fun to me. Um, yeah. But needless to say, I feel, you know, I think if you get out of your bubble, you do feel optimistic about the world. But then you look at what's going on in America and in Canada and and you have to wonder where things are headed. Um, what do you think? Do you feel do you feel that things are turning around for the better um, I, I see I, in the short term, I'm pretty pessimistic. Maybe um, I think they're, like I said earlier, I'm trying to be an optimist. So I'm, <laughs> I don't want to be this way. Um, 
Um, and yeah, I, I, I totally, what, what you said is, is, is great, Megan. And I, that, that that's, that's wonderful. Um, um, we should, the, the life is so much richer than just politics. I can't remember who said, if, if you don't care about, you may not care about politics, but politics cares about you. So, um, so unfortunately there, there's only so far that we can go in, in not caring about politics because just the, the kind of voluntary space that, that, you know, just kind of people who want to interact as, as people and not like identity categories. Um, that's the, it feels like it's getting more and more confined, like that world. You can't, you can't just choose to interact with people on an individual basis. Um, now I will say there, there are some, uh, people are, um, starting to, uh, look more closely at DEI. Certainly there's, there, there've been, um, what happened, um, with the congressional screenings, um, with the presidents of, uh, Harvard, MIT and Penn, you know, of course that made a big splash. Um, um, but there's also, you know, and so on the one hand, I want to be optimistic and say people are giving these programs a second look. They're not being, yeah. they're not um, kind of rubber stamped like they were. Um, but I don't know. I think the evidence on that is mixed because I've seen different um, surveys where um, corporations, you know, maybe they're not spending as much, but they still are. There, there are lots of legal reasons why they, they'll, they'll probably still be in place. And even just from like you, you see the the spike really started in 2020 after uh, after George Floyd, um, and now um, you've got an organized interest group. You've got a multi-billion-dollar industry that um, you know would have been nice if colleges would have just did what they were supposed to do and actually study an issue and see if it works, and then force it up upon millions and millions of undergrads. But they didn't do that. They they fell in love with an idea that wasn't proven. And now there's there's a lot of evidence that is not only it's not proven, but that it's actually harmful. But guess what? Now you've got a multi-billion dollar industry that's gonna fight tooth and nail to yeah. protect their turf and expand their turf. And that's just what interest groups do. It's it's not like particular to this group. It's like, you know, you can, you know, pick any political organization. And once there once there's money tied to it and and there's uh, an organized group, they're going to fight for what they think is theirs. And, and they still have lots and lots of clout and they have people in very high positions who really believe this stuff. And it's spilling out into my, you know, I just wrote an article uh, about how Harvard and Sundance, the, the Sundance Film Festival, how they share the same brain. Now, my, my industry is, it's, it's like, I'm going to, you know, Brown University or something that just trying to make a movie because uh, whether you're in meetings or at film festivals, um, everything is has this the same worldview that uh, that started really in the universities, and it's just kind of spilling over into more and more parts of the culture. So yeah, I I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> I want to be optimistic, yeah. but, um, and that's frankly part of the reason why we think the, this movie could be really well timed right now because our message is not just like DEI is awful. Like, you know, we agree with the goals of having, you know, everybody achieve as much as they possibly can in the absence of racism and all the other things that, you know, most uh, well-meaning people are, are opposed to, but um, there are lots of better ways to do um, 
to do these things. There's, there's this um, professor at Harvard named Roland Fryer, who himself was targeted by um, the outrage mob for for uh, uh, not very good reasons. And he says, like, why, Harvard, if you care about more black representation, why don't you use some of your billions to start schools in inner cities? And he 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 wrote a big a big article about that. And, and you know, you could there you know there are we've created this Rube Goldberg machine DEI. And if we really want to just like make sure that students have the skills that they need to succeed in Harvard or elsewhere, I mean Harvard is, you know, there are few institutions more wealthy or more influential than Harvard. They could just go out and do it. But you know, they don't, as far as they know, they they, they don't. And his idea, he's a brilliant guy. Um, you know, he's he's a black guy, uh, grew, grew up uh, poor. You know, he would be he would be the president of Harvard maybe if if he just thought the right way. So all, for all this talk of diversity, it's really a lot of times it's just skin deep. They they don't. If you want to make people uncomfortable, whether you're at the Sundance Film Festival or or at Harvard, uh, you know, bring up viewpoint diversity or intellectual diversity. They don't want that. They don't want rolling friars. They they want people who, uh, if you're black, you're supposed to think this way. If you're brown, you're supposed to think this way. And and those are the people they like. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I keep coming back to also because while on one hand I might be having conversations with a lot of people who are critical of these these ideologies and these practices, these policies at the institutional level, it's still quite entrenched. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think the regular, I mean, you look at the public polling. I mean, I think most polls would be, frankly, on your side, Megan. You, you may come, um, uh, I, you know, I, like I said, I, I, I do make it a point to follow them to, to some degree. And I'm just always amazed by the um, disconnect between what people <laughs> at Harvard and Sundance and elsewhere say and, and just what, you know, what the polling data say. Like most Black people, for instance, don't don't want racial preferences. They they don't want to defund the police. They never wanted to. I mean, this is what right. you know, some black people wanted that, and they're called progressives. And you know, progressives tend to be um, overwhelmingly white. And and I think they kind of they want people to think that all the minority groups agree with them, and it's just not true. I mean, they agree with them too on some things in certain ways, but but in a lot of these big hot button issues, they're just kind of creating a pretend world where these different minority groups uh, agree with them. And I, I think it's pretty clear that on a lot of these issues, they just don't. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So um, tell me how and when you are releasing this film and how people will be able to watch it. The film, again, for those listening, is Coddling of the American Mind, just like the book. Yeah. Um, you can go to uh, thecoddlingmovie.com. We are... Um, in the midst of putting all the uh, the distribution together, um, it's the first of its kind um, distribution. Um, I'll just say that it will be available um, beginning um, in uh, roundabout uh, late-ish February. So um, so it's right around the corner. Um, and uh, if you go to thecoddlingmovie.com, we'll have updates. Uh, I have a a Substack called Shiny Herd where I provide updates as well. Um, and we have a lot of very cool things in store for this, um, uh, for this, um, 
for this movie. We're going to be on college campuses. Uh, we've already been on, on, on a lot. I'm very happy to say it's been really, really enthusiastically received by diverse audiences too. So I think that is uh, maybe a, a hopeful sign. Um, we're going to be eventually on uh, a lot of the, the familiar streaming services, but we have a special thing in store uh, even, even before that. So um, stay tuned and, and, and we'll be uh, revealing a lot more very soon. Cool. Um, I don't know about you. I really enjoyed this conversation. Oh, <laughs> I've made feel worse, a, but... even, though, even though you've been depressing me a little bit, <laughs> but most, on balance, it's been, yeah, it's been fantastic. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean the good thing is that you know that people can come out of this, right? You know, the, the, the young people that you spoke to for the documentary started off Definitely. in a place and, and ended up in a totally different place. So I think that is very hopeful. Exactly. We're all works in progress. And the people the, you know, the young person that you see screaming on, on campus today that, you know, they might, they might be, you know, with the right guidance, they could be mellowed out very soon. Um, they, we, the, the, the young people we profiled did just that. So they've, they, they've gone to the darkest depths and they've come out and, and found the light. So if they can do it, uh, there's really no reason why others can't do it as well. Right. Well, thank you for that optimistic message. And yeah, thanks again for your time. It was great to talk with you. Oh, pleasure, Megan. Thank you. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. I produce and host this podcast all by myself and rely on individual donors to sustain my work. This is all me and you, the listener. If you want to keep episodes free as well as free thinking, please consider signing up on Patreon at patreon.com slash Megan Murphy subscribing on Substack at www.meganmurphy.ca or donating directly to support this podcast via PayPal at paypal.me slash the same drugs. Every little bit counts and ensures I can stay independent. Thank you so much for supporting conversations outside the algorithm.